Our next guest was hypothesizing something else when she discovered the phenomenon of our topic today. She wanted to show how in her study of medical teams, better teams made fewer mistakes. But when she ran her analysis, she was surprised to find the opposite. The most dynamic teams appeared to report more mistakes. What? This seemed like a no-brainer, but it wasn't a glitch. The culprit was psychological safety. Welcome to The Behaviorist with Work Wisdom, where we help you adopt high-performance mindsets, behaviors, communication, and culture. I'm your host, Sarah Colantonio. Our intention for The Behaviorist podcast is to share accessible, concrete practices you can weave into your whole life to begin a shift toward joy and meaningful achievement. Today, we're turning our focus on psychological safety. We're grateful to have Dr. Amy Edmondson, the, well, we call you the mother of psychological (laughs) safety. Um, You're also a professor at Harvard Business School and the esteemed author of The Fearless Organization. That's your most recent book, yes? Yes, it is. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast where everyone's so excited. And um, one of the our team members, Matt, he said, be sure to tell her about the tattoo I have on my chest that says psychological safety on it. And I said, I'm sure she'll appreciate that. He's joking, but he is a big fan of the, of the concept. Um, that's awfully nice. <laughs> I have to say that's a new one. I was going to say, is, have you, you heard that before? No, I have not. That's awfully nice to hear. Yeah. Well, um, we, you know, we, uh, discovered you a number of years ago when we were researching our book about um, authentic communication. And so, uh, so we've been really grateful to be able to use, you know, in my email to you, I let you know that this is something that we share your work with so many of our clients. Um, But what I, I wanted to, to get into the first question was just that story that I opened with. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I found that to be sure. so funny. <laughs> it is funny because, you know, it's it, it happened when I was a second-year doctoral student. Actually, it started when I was a first-year doctoral student, but by the time I had the data of both the error data and the team survey data, I was a second-year doctoral student. So I was pretty new to this business of research. Yeah. And I thought what I was asking was pretty simple mm-hmm. and pretty logical, right? <laughs> that better teams, according to a validated survey instrument, in a complex interdependent setting like healthcare delivery, ought to be making fewer mistakes, right? You right. know, I mean, that's that had been shown <laughs> in aviation and the cockpit and various other places. And I thought, sure, this must certainly be true here. And as you pointed out, the data initially seemed to suggest exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the so-called better teams had higher error rates. And so it was only later, you know, not too much later, that I realized, wait a minute, there might be something funky with the measure. <laughs> right? Because, you know, you you said in your, in your opening, um, report more mistakes. And indeed, that's ultimately the punchline, right? Okay. It's, it's it's not that they were making more mistakes. In yeah. fact, we really can't easily tell whether they're making mistakes. We can tell, we can always tell those mistakes that end up causing real harm. Those right. come to light. But an awful lot of mistakes never come 
come to light because fortunately nothing bad really happens. And so you can readily realize that it's not so hard to hide mistakes. So what I had in fact discovered was that better teams were more able and willing to talk about error. And why might that be true? Well, they they kind of recognize the complexity, the risk, the, you know, the importance of candor, because if they're not talking about it, bad things could really happen. So they were sort of, you know, they they were willing to do something that's kind of inherently interpersonally hard and say, yeah. hey, I made a mistake or hey, you made a mistake. Neither, neither one of those things is technically terribly easy uh, to do. Uh, but what what happened was I, you know, when I first saw the result, I was scared and, <laughs> and surprised. And then I started to think about it. And it occurred to me, this idea I'm saying right here is that, you know, maybe they're more able and willing to talk about mistakes. It ended up being a um, pretty sort of challenging prospect to try to collect the kind of data that would show that might really be true. Um, and And yet I was able to do it. And so I would say fast forward to today, most hospitals, most you know, medical folks realize that there's a very real risk um, that there might be differences in what I call interpersonal climate that might lead people to be less or more willing to talk about things that go wrong. And that matters, right? Oh, it matters yeah. for patients. It matters for improvement. It matters for fundamental learning. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And when I was reading your book, I it it just made me realize how fortunate I am to work where I work. But also, yeah, the costs are things that you definitely talk about, and, and we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, they're really high. They can be really high. Mm-hmm. So, since you're the mother of psychological safety, <laughs> I have to ask you: How do you define it exactly? What what does it mean? Does it mean anything goes, or what exactly oh, is the way that you see all. it? Yeah, not at all. In fact, I define psychological safety as a um, it describes a climate in which people truly feel able to speak up with yeah. work relevant content, whether that be asking a question, offering a good idea acknowledging a mistake or a weakness or anything else that might in fact matter here yeah. to us. That's perfect. I So uh, a couple of months ago, we were having a meeting and one of my colleagues was like, I'm sure everybody's already thought of this, but, and then she brought up her idea and nobody <laughs> had thought of it. <laughs> we were like, thank great? you for saying it. Um, yeah. I think we- It's a great we, story. Yeah, we don't give ourselves enough credit half the time. So, no, okay. and those, and those um, you know, those sort of softening words. I'm sure this is a, this yeah. is probably not a very good idea or probably right. everybody's thought about this idea or yeah. I'm not sure I should say this, but at least when people are saying it, then, then, you know, there is enough psychological safety there, but they, they ought to be, they ought to just come right out and say it. Like, yeah. don't apologize. <laughs> right. Your voice is welcome here. Yeah, exactly. We need a sign. Yes. Um, <laughs> So in fearless organizations, you talk about um, how organizations go wrong by not having psychological safety. So what are the costs? There's really two kinds of costs, which are two sides of the same coin. You know, and, and cost number one are the avoidable failures that aren't avoided, right? right. So, so, so failures... Um, fundamentally of two kinds, right? Business failures where a product fails that someone could have told you in advance, but they didn't feel capable to speak up or uh, business failures where we get into, you know, a major 
you know, scandal with fraud or other ethical violations, you know, like what happened at, um, at VW and Wells Fargo, right. among other organizations. So business failures that in a psychologically safe context would not happen is one category. And the other category are the lost opportunities, yeah. right? the, the um, you know, the innovation that didn't happen because someone didn't share that crazy idea because yeah. they thought, that idea might not be welcome here. And, you know, that's invisible. You never know that someone might have had the million-dollar idea mm. that they didn't, they didn't say anything about. And so, the, you know, um, the, both of those are pretty hard to detect in advance. You know, the business failure that's mm -hmm. coming at us but we don't see it is hard to detect in advance, uh, but doable. But the second kind, one will almost never know, right? Mm. It remains invisible, yeah. which is a problem. Yeah. I was I was thinking when I was thinking of questions and looking through your book about Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranus, mm. and and there was a recent documentary about um, her company. And, you know, it sounded like people that tried to speak up it, were just basically pushed out. It wasn't you know, they, right. they were covering for each other constantly. And then look what happened. I mean, that was that was such a major failure. Major a, failure. Yeah. And so much value lost and so many lives harmed. And by yeah. that, I particularly mean the employees inside and yeah. outside the company, such as in partner organizations like Walgreens. You know, the people who, who um, really were in this very difficult, problematic situation, unhealthy situation for longer than than they should be. And I would say it's a very good example. Like Theranos was a good example of clear messages being sent that you are not allowed to speak up right. with your concerns. Right. Um, and then and then ultimately, you know, requiring a couple of brave souls to become whistleblowers, which, um, you know, is not a success. I mean, it's great that there it's great that there were whistleblowers. It's great that finally this did come to light through a Wall Street Journal article and, and then, you know, the attention of regulators and mm -hmm. so on. But of course, you know, there's not a single person out there who wouldn't prefer that their company could manage their problems internally, yeah. not requiring them to be headline news for all the world to see. Right. Yeah. So we've been talking about the costs. I want to ask you about and you talk about this in your book, concrete examples of organizations and teams that really exemplify psychological safety. Well, let's see. Let me take, you know, one um, that I really love, uh, which is Pixar, yeah. um, which is, a, you know, as an organization, of course, but they they put in place processes that create psychological safety in in teams or groups of people who are coming together to get to get work done and they kind of they recognize one that candor is mission critical to mm. a creative process right you're not going to end up with a really appealing really um, creative winning movie film right. um, unless people are able to be candid along the way about the things that don't work yeah. and the crazy ideas they have that maybe we should put in. So sort of recognizing the reality of what we've been talking about so far, um, they're very good at two things. One is modeling candor, right? Sort yeah. of modeling, ah, 
I missed, I really messed up. Let me, you know, let me tell you about the, the, the crazy thing I just did or thought or whatever. So when, when leaders are modeling those kinds of behaviors, it makes it easier uh, for others to do the same. And then two is putting in place, you know, what we could almost think of as scaffolding, you know, to, to, to prop up this very challenging process of candor, um, of, of criticizing and, and, um, pointing out mistakes and glitches in in an earnest effort to make things better. And one of the tools they use is something they call the brain trust, which is simply a ritual, a process of bringing people together, both the movie makers and other people in the company who who can just come in and help critique where we are so far. And it comes with guidelines. You know, everybody, doesn't matter what your role is, the rest of your life here in this company, when you walk into the brain trust, we're all peers. Yeah. Um, all, all, just a few things, you know, all, all criticism is, is um, coming from a place of empathy. Mm. The things you offer are suggestions, not mandates, and, yeah, and so on. These kinds of rules and structures that just make something that's inherently challenging a little bit easier. Yeah. And we can laugh, you know, we can laugh about our humanity and, in, in, you know, the, the funny things we do uh, to avoid having these kinds of difficult conversations, but we know we have to do it. So we do it. Yeah. So that's a good example. I mean, that's one of my favorite examples. Another place would be um, a, a case I've written a lot about, which is uh, Children's Minnesota, a, a tertiary care children's mm-hmm. hospital in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, that that went... Um, went to great lengths to try to radically improve patient safety. And patient safety, for the reasons we were talking about earlier, is, is a big deal. And today, you know, nearly every hospital realizes that. Um, it's a big deal because of all of the new and old ways things can go wrong and then patients can get harmed. And a couple of decades ago, nobody talked about that. In fact, I think in a genuine way, many people just didn't even realize it. Sort of when things did go wrong, they assumed it was because some individual person, clinician, what have you, screwed up or wasn't competent. Um, but as time has gone on, we began to recognize that, no, things can often go wrong because of a, of, of system failures, you know, where yeah. one or two small things just happen to line up in just the wrong way and something bad happens. And in order to prevent system failures, we really need people speaking up about mm. anything and everything, even if they're not sure at all that it's wrong or right. And and so in order to make that a new norm in a in an industry and an organization where it was anything but the way people generally worked and thought, mm. um, they had they had to do a lot. And it particularly when I say they, I'm particularly focused on the chief operating officer whose name was Julie Morath, and she did just a great deal as a leader, both to send the right message about how important everybody's voice was, and also to create systems and processes and rituals that make it easier. So, so I love that. How, so how can we build more psychological safety? Like, <laughs> and who is the we? Like, can we all That's do it? Or, or do you have to be the leader? How does that work? Well, let me start by saying 
what's probably obvious, which is that leaders, and I'll have to qualify what I mean by that in a moment, have an outsized influence. I mean, so the answer is yes, anyone can do it. Anyone can yeah. make a difference. Anyone can help create a healthier, more psychologically safe um, environment. Um, and leaders, we human beings naturally look up. We look at high status others. Um, they inform us how to dress, how to speak, how to behave. And, you know, so they just, that's just the way our species is. So yeah. we kind of have to recognize that. And, and therefore there's plenty of advice I, and we can give to leaders to help create a psychologically safe environment. And, and I'll suggest just a couple of things, uh, in a moment, but I do want to say, Interestingly, I think the things I will suggest can actually be done by anyone. Yeah. Right? You can be a peer, you can be a subordinate, um, you can just be a person at a dinner party <laughs> and you can do things that actually make it easier yeah. for others to feel safe to express themselves. Okay. And, and so I, I, I tend to talk about these things um, in a framework that's more or less chronological although it's not one and done, or these things we have to sort of keep doing all the time. And mm -hmm. the, the chronology goes like this, uh, setting the stage, you know, inviting participation and responding productively. Mm. And, and setting the stage is about reminding people that, um, you know, we, we face uncertainty, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't, right. we, we face uncertainty, we face complexity, we face risk, ergo, mm -hmm. uh, we need to hear from you. And in other words, that's about Setting the stage is about creating a strong rationale for why everyone's voice matters. Yeah. And, you know, anyone might see something that others miss, right? So it's 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 valuable, right? So you're sort of you're you're reminding people, as Julie right. Morath at Children's, do, that this is a complex, error-prone system. We need to hear from you. Mm. Um, inviting engagement is a pretty simple thing that anyone can do, but we often forget to do it, which is just asking genuine questions. You know, and a genuine question is first and foremost one I don't know the answer to, um, but more importantly, it's one that it focuses on something that matters, you know, whether it's patient safety or the, the new product we're thinking about launching or the movie that's in process here. It focuses us on something and then invites careful thought. You know, what do you see? Um, what, what might we be missing if this went south, what would have been the reason why, right? So they're the kind of question that just gets you thinking. Yeah. And when someone asks a good question, in a moment, it creates a sort of mini stage, mm -hmm. vacuum almost, where someone feels able and invited to answer. Yeah. And then so their, their voice is almost required. If I ask you a question, look what you're doing with me is you're asking me a question and it would be mighty awkward for me to just sit here <laughs> mute, right? right. I, I, couldn't, I, I almost couldn't do it. Right. I have to answer because you've asked me a good question, so I, I answer it. So you have given me a sense of psychological safety because you have told me I want to hear what you're thinking. Yeah. And then I say, okay, and I give you what I'm thinking. The third thing is, let's say I told you what I was thinking, and then you said, oh, that's really stupid. <laughs> Ah, uh, that might kill it. Right, right? exactly. Right? So you have to respond in a productive right. way. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything I say. Far from it. But it means you have to be appreciative of the effort it took for me to say it. You might yeah. say something like, that's interesting, or thanks for that clear line of sight, or what do you think we should do next? You know, and you're, 
you're sort of responding in a thoughtful, productive way that makes what might be a difficult moment into a far more positive, palatable moment. It sounds like with those three things, yes, of course, anybody in an organization could do that. Like anybody can right. can do those three things pretty easily. Um, to- yeah, and, it, and you know, it's important. I'd say the first one is something that's particularly important for people. You know, when people higher up in the organization, um, let's say at the very top of the organization, are often, um, I think they have to do two important things. One is, of course, call attention to the purpose, you know, why what we do matter, because that also builds motivation to care. And I think you do have to care to be willing to speak up as well. Um, But the other is to kind of keep reminding us that, wow, you know, we're in a really complex competitive marketplace, you know, um, innovation matters or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're sort of always uh, setting the stage by framing the work in that way. But probably the most important leaders are the leaders in the middle, the yeah. project leaders, the branch um, managers, the the the, the um, restaurant chain managers. You know the the people who are um, the proximal boss, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know because they, um, in many ways, that's where that's where the work plays out. That's where the real work happens, and how that happens and and how um, people that we sort of look up to locally behave can be a powerful influence on how much psychological safety you have where the work is actually getting done. So leaders aren't just, you know, we tend to think of that as a capital L. I use right. this, I think of small L leaders are anyone who acts in a way that positively influences or in some cases negatively influences but but has an influence on how others think and feel so you you know you give the example in your talk and also in the in the book about the nurse who doesn't call the doctor doesn't call out Mm -hmm. the doctor because she got yelled at the last time Mm -hmm. and i'm just curious if there's someone out there listening who's maybe in a similar situation maybe not a doctor and nurse situation but it feels like you know, they can't yes. speak up because they got shut down. What What's right. your advice to her? Like, what should she, what would yes. you? Well, you know, there is a, um, there is sometimes a need for courage. Mm. I mean, there's often a need for courage, yeah. right? So if one, if you find yourself in a situation where, um, and that nurse, you know, was, was a little bit uncertain about a particular dose, Um, but not so uncertain, you know, it wasn't as if, because there are situations where you absolutely know this is the wrong drug. It shouldn't be given. And in those situations, I find it tends to be pretty straightforward. I mean, it's easy. Like you just sort of say, oops, wrong order. I need the right order. Right. But when it's the gray zone where Mm. we get trouble, right? So it's, Hmm, I'm not quite sure. This dose looks high, but then again, you know, the patient's on an experimental protocol, it's probably right. The doctor probably knows what he or she is doing, mm-hmm. right? And and your brain is doing this all at the speed of light, right? It's right. not like, you know, it's not like you write it down in a flow chart and then say, hmm, should I call? <laughs> should I not call? It's, you know, it's just happening, um, happening rather effortlessly. And, and, the point I make is that when you've had these prior negative experiences, you will be even more predisposed to silence rather than voice. Yeah. And so, but when people find themselves in that situation, 
what they must do is remind themselves that your brain tricks you because your brain tells you that this sort of potential moment of scolding is more important than the potential downstream subsequent harm that might happen to a patient. Even if you see it as like a very low, 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 low likelihood event, it's still better to err on the side of voice. Um, Like that your brain is lying to you and saying, (laughs) ooh, the doctor's scorn matters and the patient's health doesn't. When in fact you logically know it's exactly the opposite. The doctor's scorn doesn't matter and the patient's health does. Um, But your brain is kind of messing you up there. So you sort of have to override that and say, ha, brain, I refuse to (laughs) I refuse to be dictated by this thing and I'm just going to, you know, grit my teeth and make that call. And, you know, if the doctor yells at me, I'm just going to, in the back of my mind, say to myself, huh, you can't, your words, you know, (laughs) sticks and stones, right? right? But, but it's not me and I'm doing the right thing and doing the right thing feels good. What I would love is for no one to ever have to go through that yeah. mental gymnastics, you know, that that um, they never would have the experience of being yelled at at work for a, a well-meaning question, um, which, you know, maybe sounds fanciful. But then again, why should that be out of out of range? You know, right. why should that be, a, a, you know, a kind of impossible dream? Uh, it really shouldn't. I mean, I think well-trained clinicians, well-trained managers, um, know that the shadow of the future matters, right? So they know that it is their job, even if they don't like something that just happened to respond in the most productive way because of what's at stake. And by the way, because that's a human being who deserves respect. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I I think we should aim for this. (laughs) Absolutely. And it has taken off. I mean, it's I I was reading about it, psychological safety in the Wall Street Journal the other week. You know, wow. you were cited yes. in that article, Amazing. so that was exciting. Um, I mean, people talk about this and um, and how you know how to increase it. So I think um, it's so wonderful that that your work that started when it started is is really it's it's a topic of conversation it's something that people really want it has been very gratifying yeah. to see this sort of uptick in interest and i think it corresponds to the you know growing recognition that we live in such a yeah. complex fast changing world and the future of work is not what it used to be right. and people are you know people realize we need to learn we need to innovate and it's not easy so we need this extra thing. I so um, my next question is is about um, the leader who promotes psychological safety in our team, but then there's this person who always picks apart everything, and I'm just curious what you think about that. Like, how do you have that conversation? You know, should everything be picked apart? You know, what point is it crossing over into negativity? Great. So, you know, I, the, the question implies and it's and it's um, and it's a good question and it implies a kind of almost a trade off or a, let's not go too far with this. Yeah. And I want to try to reframe it as follows. Like I I, um, I think it's um, rarely a good idea to use fear or intimidation to kind of um, limit the, per, the picking apart behavior. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. In fact, I would say 
let's try to make the environment as psychologically safe for voice as possible. Mm -hmm. And then let's also help people. Oops, sorry. Just wait a second. <laughs> and then we also have to help people by providing feedback. Yeah. Keep when you know when they're being either excessively negative or excessively detailed or perseverating on something that just isn't helping the team. So people need and deserve our feedback. Yeah. And and so uh, the last thing we want to do is sort of redirect their behavior through through fear. What we want to do is redirect it through learning yeah. and and helping them understand because all of us are blind. You know, we're, we're aware of our good intentions, but we're blind to our impact, you know, by definition. And so much of the time, maybe even most of the time, our good intentions work out pretty well and our impact is what we hope it will be. People appreciate what we've said. They find it useful. They find it helpful. But sometimes they find it negative or excessive or whatever it is. And so we need to know that it is not a kindness for you to not tell me when I'm derailing our process. Yeah. Because you're going to tell someone else later. Right? <laughs> right? And I don't want that. Right? It might be awkward and uncomfortable in the moment, but it's, it's worth it. And we're not talking about a dinner party here. We're talking about the workplace right. where we all should be in a process of continuous improvement. And there, there are things we're going to do well, and there are always going to be things we do less well. Mm -hmm. And if we don't find out which those are, we don't learn and grow. Yeah, I, I have, I'm looking at my list of questions here and I'm wondering if this is sort of out of left field, but I was reading um, about situation, situational humility. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I think the concept's yeah. so interesting. I do too. And I, I mean, I love this concept because I think many people, especially high achieving people in various realms, have a problem with humility. They might read a management book or leadership book and read that humility is a good thing in a leader. And then, yeah, okay. But right, there's, there's a way in which it might feel false, or it, it, it might feel like false modesty, or just not quite resonate. And so I like the addition of the modifier situational humility, because mm. what that means to me is that given this situation, one, anyone who's thoughtful should and would feel humble about it because, you know, the situation is incredibly challenging or incredibly complex or incredibly uncertain. Right. So I may have many strengths, mm -hmm. um, you know, many uh, capabilities and many accomplishments, and I've never stood in this exact place before, right, in this moment where I have to make a decision that's quite challenging. So I should necessarily feel some humility about it. Mm -hmm. And when I feel that, it almost naturally triggers curiosity, which is a really good thing. Right. right? If I'm humble about the fact that I don't know something and then I sort of get curious, then I might ask a question and that might be a very good thing. I, you know, going back to what you were saying about feedback, I, I think if it, it sort of ties together, if I can have that sort of situational humility, which can lead to curiosity, then I'm more eager to, to know what I'm doing wrong or, I'm, or exactly. what I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, if I have, and if I, if conversely, I have a mindset that says, well, I'm supposed to know everything. I'm supposed to be a professional, or I'm supposed to be an yeah. expert. Then it's very hard for me to take feedback of any kind because yeah. it just feels like a little, a small death. Right. How can I not know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um. So the last question I have for you is, um, you know, for people that are listening, uh, you know, if there's an organization or a company. Uh, that wants to create psychological safety, you know, what would, what would you say, what's their first step? What's the first like concrete thing that they could do? I think the first step is to pull together a team to work on this together. And, and by a team, I mean a, a reasonably diverse group, people with different, likely to have different perspectives, maybe because they're in different functions or different roles or levels or locations in the company um, to kind of at first do a little bit of a diagnosis of where do we think we are? You know, do we yeah. think we have a, um, um, a kind of uniform psychological safety deficit or do we think we have pockets where people just haven't been well enough trained in leadership skills or management skills or whatever? So we need to, you know, get together mm-hmm. and, and take an earnest um, look at where we think we are and and then um, start to organize to implement some of these skills and tools in, in the right places. So it's a combination of recognition and awareness that needs to be raised and tools and structures that need to be put to good use. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for being part of this movement of helping world changers in the workplace to enhance their individual and collective team performance. And I I also want to remind our listeners to check out Dr. Edmondson's book, The Fearless Organization. Uh, It is, it's, it's such a wonderful read. And also I feel like it's a helpful like workbook. Like this is how you can do it. This is why you want to do it. This is how you can do it. And I I would say that would be step two, you know, if they're going to maybe even step one, (laughs) they could read the book and, and then they would have some really clear tools about how to go forward. Um, well, thank you for that. I tried to do that because yeah. I've been writing about this and studying it for a long time. And and I really worked hard to make it actionable, particularly yeah. toward, toward the end of the book. Yeah. At Work Wisdom, that's the concrete part, the way that we can practice it. I mean, that's what people ask of us. So um, to have a resource like this is, is so wonderful. And so it's also an audio book. Is that right? Yes, it is. Do you are you do you read the book? Are you the I voice? Don't. I don't. They didn't even ask me. You have such a great voice. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is hard work, as I'm sure you know, but to to, to, uh, do an audio book. But they did not ask me. And I have to admit, I haven't heard it, but I know it's out there. and I'm glad it's out there. Okay, so for audio, you know, the audio listeners, uh, you can get it. You can get it through the audio book apps or something like that, or you can just buy it. Um, thank you again. I, I appreciate so much you, of your time and wise words. Uh, thank you listeners for downloading The Behaviorist. We hope you'll subscribe. You can reach out to us through our website, workwisdomllc.com, where you can enjoy Work Wisdom Press and productions. You can ask questions and give suggestions of any topics you'd like us to explore in the future. As is our custom, we'll leave you with a one-minute wisdom by Anthony DeMello. If you make me your authority, said the master to the starry-eyed disciple, you harm yourself because you refuse to see things for yourself. And after a pause, he added gently, you harm me too 
because you refuse to see me as I am. Thank you.